Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you guys here as we continue our series on Second Peter. Just a little bit of a, <clears throat> a disclaimer. If you came today looking for a nice, simple, easy sermon, this is not the day for you. There is some rich, rich things. I'm doing my best. I see somebody, oh, if it's not simple, I'm out the door. I see them. <clears throat> um, I'm doing my best to keep it in our normal allotment. I could have easily done this in two weeks, but I didn't want to do that. I, this, this was so important. I don't want to take the chance of some people being here this week and then missing some of it next week. So I'm trying to put it all together in one. I've called this week's message. It's number five in our series on Second Peter, Judging Evil, Preserving Saints. So there are a lot of things you're going <clears> to <throat> see here, some big links and some little links. So you've got to make sure you pay attention. Do you ever wonder why it seems like evil just seems to have a free run in, in, in the world? I mean, why doesn't God just judge evil immediately? I mean, we know, look, we know that evil is caused by our sin to some degree. But why does God even allow sin to be a thing in the first place? <clears throat> why must we even tolerate evil like false teaching, what we talked about last week and how it's clearly connected to evil? Didn't Christ suffer on the cross to defeat evil? Will evil ever get what it deserves? And we, we grapple with these questions today the same way the first century church grappled with them. But the fact is, we are even more exposed to false teaching now than the first century church was. We have it through the internet. We have it nationally. We even have it locally, false teaching. And you can't escape this reality, that God's people, God's church will always be plagued by the evil of false teaching all around us. <clears throat> and so where do we turn? Where do we get the motivation, the inspiration that we need to wait patiently for God to sort things out? And it's easy to lose heart and to give up. Where can we get the confidence and assurance we need that tells us God knows what he's doing and we should just stand firm and wait on him? I think today's passage is going to blow some of you away, and it's going to teach you the importance of reading God's Word, not just alone in isolation, but in community. Let's look at the passage from 2 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains, I put that in bold because we are going to come back to that. There's a little link there that I want you to see later that I think is going to be quite an aha moment for some of you. Chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them, day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. If God can do all that, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. When you see that word chains, I'm going to just give you a little clue. Binding together. <clears throat> just file that away. Historically speaking, I want you to see what's going on with these passages. When, they, when, when, these, when these letters were received, these apostolic letters were received by the church, 
It's a unique process. For first century believers at this point, we know it's a very discouraging time. First, they were dealing with Nero, and Peter addressed that in his first letter. And now he's addressing these false teachers that are everywhere. Nero, at this point, isn't even Peter's greatest concern anymore. First, Peter helped teach them how to deal with that. Now this is number one priority, dealing with the evil of false teachings. And I can imagine what these first century brothers and sisters are feeling and what they're thinking, right? Their frustration, their discouragement. Man, these false teachers are causing havoc. Why do so many people leave the apostles' teaching and embrace these guys? Why does God allow them to do this? Why doesn't God just wipe out all of this evil? Man, it feels like sometimes he isn't even watching. And that's exactly the struggle they were having. And Peter wanted to remind them, I know you feel that way, but God knows how to deal with evil. And he knows how to preserve his people. And he does, Peter does this brilliantly. The first thing I want you to see is these letters, when they were, dis, uh, when they were received, were read in community. It's critical for you to know how the church received these apostolic letters once they were delivered to them in person. Here's what would happen. <clears throat> Everyone, spread the word. We got a new letter from Peter. We're all going to gather together today, 3 p.m., and we're going to start reading it together, all of us. So what would happen is they would all gather. They're excited. This letter has come. They gathered. The elders would open the scroll or, the, or tear the seal open on the letter, and in community together, they would work their way through aloud with one another. Interestingly enough, all apostolic letters, every one of them, are filled with these beautiful links to the Old Testament and also other apostolic letters. And so, let's say that you're the first century church and you're reading this and you come across today's passage that we're studying and you have these very clear links to the Old Testament, right? Right? You got Noah and the flood and the angels and then Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his family, what would they do? Well, they would stop reading. Okay, hold on. Open the corresponding scroll in Genesis, and let's read those stories together. So they would stop. Okay, he said, Noah, the angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah, let's go back to Genesis 6. Let's go back to Genesis 18. Let's read those stories again. So now they have a full understanding of those stories. It'll probably take them 20 minutes. And as they do that, they read these stories, they go back to Peter's letter, suddenly these apostolic letters in community. Now, they aren't doing this alone on their tablets. They're together. These letters come alive. They're filled with joy as they study these things and the incredible richness that comes to the forefront. And the community becomes refreshed. And invigorated, yeah, there's a lot of evil, but look how beautiful God's word is. Together they discover beautiful details, seeing things together that they never saw before individually, and they read these letters in community in a brand new light, and that's how these letters were designed to be read. They were not designed to be read one at a time on our phone app by ourselves, never together in community. They were designed to be read together in person. What they didn't do in the first century is what we do today. And this drives me nuts. They didn't pull up verses here or there for a daily little pick-me-up or a little bumper sticker or a meme. They were meant to be read in community, in full, 
or in significant sections along with all the other links that they contain. I see some people put up a verse, and it's a nice verse, but they don't realize there are three links to the Old Testament in it. And they lose what's really happening. So here's what happens, though. As they read these letters the way they were intended to be read, in community, going back to the links they're made reference to, there is a compelling impact. Read aloud in community with dialogue and context and discussion. Can you see how that setting would bring these letters alive, fulfilling their intention that Peter had, which was what? These are important things for you to remember. It's why I write them over and over again. And I'm going to reference some of them in this letter that I wrote to you in the first one. Imagine the dynamic. Everyone listening, learning, studying together around food and fellowship and unity, slave with the master, rich with the poor, husbands and wives, everyone together. Imagine those community aha moments, if you will, where the, he would read something and they would see a connection. People go, oh, you could hear it almost like, you know, a hush in the room. You catch that? All right, that was cool. Okay, back to the letter. You know, it's sad how much we miss this first century dynamic in the modern Western culture, especially in our narcissistic American church today. And it is why, just a little commercial, we're committed over the next two years beginning as many grace groups as possible up and running because we are missing out on everything God's word has to offer us when we do it in isolation all the time. So let's look at the spiritual part of this. What about God? What does he do? I want, to, I want you to see that there is a pattern of judgment and preservation. Peter provides these three links to the Old Testament examples, right, to remind them that God knows how to judge evil and preserve his people. And to appreciate the richness, what you should do this week, if you're interested, which of course you are, go back and read these stories. It might take you 20 minutes. But today, we're just going to link them as Peter did for the sake of time. A little clue for you, by the way. If you are one of those who are so inclined to go back and read these three stories, if and when you read these stories, just see if you can spot a specific common theme. God's patience while searching for the righteous. If we studied them in community, it would be awesome. It would be like an aha moment for us, like the first century church probably had. But there is this rhythm throughout the Old Testament, this rhythm of judgment along with preservation. When God judges, it's not just that he's mad. He has a motive of preservation. And it's all throughout Scripture. And Peter inserting these links is a brilliant and meaningful tactic. And what we do, what we see, and what Peter has done in this passage in Second Peter is he installs a massive theological iceberg right under the surface of the letter that demands people who love God's word to take a closer inspection. Anyone who's reading it seriously would see, okay, these are clear links to several chapters in Genesis. We probably ought to see what happened there. <clears throat> but our tendency is what? Nah, just run right over it. So the three examples of God judging evil are described as judgment on, this Greek word is called asabeo. It means a world of error or untruth. Asabeo, a world of error or untruth. 
ungodliness, <clears throat> untruthfulness. The first two stories of God judging Asabeo are related back to one of the apostles' favorite Old Testament stories that we've talked about, right? Noah and the ark. And he mentions these angels in chains. It's also, by the way, linked back to 1 Peter. If you guys remember our series on 1 Peter when he talked about Noah and the angels, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, from week 14 of our 1 Peter series. If you want even more depth, go back and watch that again. But this is a reminder of how God constrained the Nephilim with chains, bound them together until the final day of judgment. Remember that little clue I gave you early on? Chains, binding. It's a reminder of how God did that. As a matter of fact, look at the passage in 1 Peter 3 that I preached on in week 14. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he, this is Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. It's the same ones. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of when? Noah. Do you see what Peter does here? It's brilliant. He makes two links for the price of one. He links back to 1 Peter. They would say, wait a minute, didn't he say that in 1 Peter? Let's go back. And now let's go back to Genesis 6. It's brilliant. You can see how reading this in community would take, you know, maybe an hour. Remember Jesus between the cross and the resurrection when he went down to where these angels are kept? And I told you he just basically talked smack to them, declared victory. Remember that? If you don't, go back. This is the first reminder of the pattern, how, how God judges Asabeho, a world of evil, the rebellious angels, and then he also preserves his people, which is Noah and his family. The second example of this pattern of judging and preserving, judging Asabeho, preserving his people, is the ancient world itself. This is not the angels, this is the people. Genesis chapter 6 through 8, you should go back if you're so inclined to read this hyperlink to Genesis 6. The second example is not about just that people were sinning a lot. That happens today. Probably happens with people in this room, right? Amen? It's humanly speaking about a world system that had become completely evil. Continually. Matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, Asabeo, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's why Peter picked this word, Asabeo, because it fit Genesis 6. And later on, you'll see how it fits Genesis 18 and 19 in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here, Asabeo is more than immorality. It's more than violence. Everything has been corrupted and infected with untruth. The world system embraced not only wickedness, but untruth, except for Noah and his seven family members. And God used the flood to purge Asabeo while preserving Noah and his family within the ark. Another example of this rhythm of God judging Asabeo while preserving his people. And then the third example, I call it one family over two cities. Genesis 18 and 19, if you are so inclined, go back today and read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his family. He wipes out Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities that are full of Asabeo, to rescue and preserve Lot's family. This is a beautiful example of God's grace. 
This time, he goes through all the trouble just for a handful of people in a bad situation. By the way, in a bad situation in these cities, in no small part due to their own bad decisions. They didn't just all of a sudden wake up one day and say, wow, evil has crept up all over us. They saw it coming and stayed where they were. You need to read the full story to comprehend how rich and deep the Asabeo was there. Severe evil, severe danger for God's people. And here God, together with Abraham, collaborate to preserve the community of God's people from Asabeo. Another beautiful reminder of the rhythm of God in judging Asabeo while preserving his people. Okay, personal section. I've called it waiting in community. This was the sermon preview this week. Ultimately, God will judge every evil. Until then, we must remain in community together, unified and loyal. This is where I got into trouble this week because this could easily be two separate sermons, one about God judging and preserving and the other one about community. But I really think for you to really understand how God judging Asabeo and preserving his people works, you have to understand that part of what needs to be done is it has to be done in community. And part of the reason we can have confidence that God will do what he says is when you start to uncover the incredible richness and fullness of God's word, most of which probably goes over your heads most of the time, you begin to realize, wow, our word is amazing. This God's word that he's given us is reliable. It is unbelievable. Now, you may ask, why did God allow rebellious angels to create Asabeo in Noah's time that needed to be restrained? Why did he let evil humans create Asabeo in the ancient world that needed to be purged by a flood? Why did he let Asabeo in Sodom and Gomorrah become so rampant he had to rescue Lot and his family, his two daughters, from danger? When and why does God decide to use restraint and patience or judgment? You're going to love this. There is a small little on-purpose link that Peter provides here that goes back to one of the most beautiful teachings of Jesus, the wheat and the tares. And it's just unbelievable. Life among the weeds. Look what he says, Jesus says in Matthew 13. This is the story about the, uh, uh, the farmer who plants wheat and then the enemy comes in, Satan, and plants weeds and tares and they look exactly the same and the farmer says, I can't do one thing, bring that back up, I think, there we go. Um, and he says, I can't pull them up because if I do, I'll destroy the wheat. And here's what it says. Here's what the farmer tells his servants. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. See that little phrase I put it in bold for you, bind them in bundles? You see the link to today's passage? The chains? That Greek word doesn't really mean change, it means rope and bound together. Do you see the link here between the tares that are bound together and the angels bound together? You see it? That's not a coincidence. That's a small one. And 2 Peter is riddled with about 25 of these beautiful little phrases that are lifted directly off of Jesus' teachings or directly out of the Old Testament inserted. And the people reading them in community with people helping to lead would notice them and recognize them and stop and say, wow, wait a minute, this sounds like the wheat and the tares. Let's go back and read that one.
See, the farmer, if he started ripping out the tares, it would tear up the roots of the wheat before the wheat can grow and bear fruit. But once the harvest comes, then the wheat is gathered, then all the tares are ripped out, gathered together, bundled up, and destroyed. Just like the angels in Genesis 6. To help you understand the beauty of how this is related to the wheat and the tares, I'm going to give you a little sneak peek into Peter's teaching that we're going to come to in a sermon in a week or so. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Doesn't that sound like the wheat and the tares? Wait till the harvest, then gather the wheat, then destroy the weeds. The Lord's not being slow. He's not being somebody who's not responsible. He's waiting because he wants all his children to come to repentance. See, the salvation and redemption and preservation of his people is always the primary goal of everything God does, including judgment. Sometimes God's hand of judgment and preservation is very clear for us to see, like in the stories that Peter references and links to. But often it happens without us even knowing it. Of course, we would almost all always do it differently than God, wouldn't we? I mean, we're pretty much ready to take it into our own hands and just pop open a can anytime we see evil we don't like, right? Take care of it ourselves. We seek to speed up God's plan politically, culturally, and instead we must remain faithful and loyal to his word, to his truth, and to each other in community. You know, it's curious, right? We anticipate and expect God's patience with our own sinfulness as we grow and bear fruit. But we're a little less enthralled when God is patient for another thing of wheat next to us that looks like a weed, aren't we? Have you ever considered the fact that you are enduring some form of evil so that it might benefit the time needed for another one of God's children he has called to grow and bear fruit? That's what the wheat in the weeds is teaching us. Maybe there is a stalk of wheat right next to you needing time to grow before God rips out the evil weeds around them. See, as a community, we must trust God's wisdom and his timing, no matter how prevalent Asabeo becomes around us. See, God knew how to deal with evil and preserve his people in the past, and he still knows how to do it today. Trust me, and he's better than you at it. Don't be weary. Don't lose heart. Don't abandon one another. Don't become isolated. Stick together. Stay in community, and evil's due will come. But then there's one more thing I want to teach you today in the personal section. I'm going to talk, and you know I have to go here. I want to talk about reading in community. I'm going to pull a verse from you from the Old Testament that really explains the rich tradition. And at one point, the Jewish people had lost it as well. It came back in the book of Nehemiah. Here's what happened. Ezra opened the book. They, they had lost the Bible, and they found it. And once they found it, wow, what is this book? Let's open it and read it. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. It wasn't on an app. It wasn't alone in their little coffee room. It was together. And as he opened it, all the people stood. The Levites helped people to understand the law. 
They read from the book clearly and gave insight so that the people understood the reading. Now, if you're a child of God, maybe this sounds boring to some, but if you're a child of God, doesn't that sound kind of fun? This is the tradition of God's people that they always followed when it came to reading his word. Can you see how there'd be comfort in that? Let me tell you something about your Bible, God's word. And this is verifiably proven. No other collection of literature in human history can compete with God's majestic intricacy in his truth. I'm just looking at six verses today and I just showed you five links. You know what else is amazing about God's word is its incredible simplicity while at the same time has these massive theological icebergs underneath the surface. Its rich intricacies and links across many authors for thousands of years blows away any of the world's clever myths that we studied last week. It is a primary reason why we at Grace Life teach book by book Chapter by chapter, verse by verse, in careful, systematic study, because I'm afraid and I'm OCD to miss anything. <laughs> I don't want you to miss anything. And those who take the actual time to study God's word, yes, not just alone, but in community, you begin to realize, wow, there is so much here. Matter of fact, so much, let's be honest, it can be a bit overwhelming. You know, we will never exhaust God's word and its brilliance. We will never exhaust discovering pearls of wisdom and treasure that lie within. It is literally a pursuit of a lifetime. You're never going to get it all. Just trust me. But the brilliance of God's word is revealed when it is read and it's studied how it is designed to be read and studied. And how is that? Not with your bagel and a cup of coffee. In community. I'm not saying you can't read it in isolation. You can, and we'll get to that in a moment. But we know this, the gospel of Jesus is full of these massive theological and philosophical icebergs just below the surface like the ones we are just barely looking at today. It is intimidating, and it should be, church. Especially if you think you can get everything you need all on your own. And when you do read God's word alone, and you should, you know what it really is? It is part of a preparation for the real reading in community. You may ask, what does this have to do with today's passage, Joe? Here it is. It's the importance of discovering truth together. God's word was designed to be read primarily in community, not isolation, even though that's, this has become the American devotional habit. And what happens is we get lazy. We forsake community, the gathering together of ourselves. Remember what Paul said? Don't forsake gathering we forsake community, and we start to read the Bible as if it were this massive moral encyclopedia or reference book, trying to cross-reference different behaviors and see what a verse says what, pulling verses from here, pulling verses from there, misapplying truth in so many ways, missing links, 
and theology, and we forsake the community dynamics, and we have no idea what God's word is really saying. People making whole traditions out of one verse or two, not understanding there are three or four chapters in the Old Testament connected to it that you have to read to understand in context. Can you see why history is so important here? Understanding how this letter was read actually is relevant for us understanding today's passage. Today's passage shows you, you just can't do it the way we've been doing it. It is not an encyclopedia. It is not a moral law dictionary. It is a big, beautiful, connected, intricate narrative designed to be enjoyed and read and captivated in community. The bottom line is this, you need more than one set of eyes to even begin to uncover all these links. Some of you probably didn't even know that link about binding was even there. They're all over the place. I struggle each week which ones to bring up. When I was going through the book of Jonah, no book has more links than Jonah. There's like 130 of them in Jonah, just a few chapters. And I just didn't have time. That's why studying God's word in community, like the churches did in the first century, is so important. It is so critical. And for us at Grace Life, I'm taking this seriously. We will continue to move forward reading in community here and in grace groups. Because I don't want you to miss any of the beauty and important reminders in God's word because we live in a world full of Asabeo. I don't want us to sit back and be jealous of how the early church received and read these letters in community together. Do you? We don't have to be. I think that's really the big lesson for today. We know that God will judge Asabehu and preserve his people. And it's really hard for us to remember how good he is at that. And so one of the best ways to know how God is rich and full and real is look at this beautiful thing he's called God's word that he's given us. It is so captivating, it won't take you too long to forget about Asabeo. And you'll be able to have minds and hearts that are set on the kingdom in community. Heavenly Dad, we are so amazed by the richness of your word. Lord, I think of this, that one little link about being bound and how that was in three different places, directly lifted from your truth. First of all, thank you for inspiring Peter to write it that way. But Lord, we, we have a confession to make. We have a sin to con confess to you. We have gotten really lazy in how we approach your truth. We are guilty of treating it as an encyclopedia. We don't really look at very many of the theological icebergs under the surface. Maybe it's intimidating, we don't, but Lord, we know this, we must stop and enjoy the richness of your word so that we can have that encouragement and that inspiration that we need to wait upon you and your plan when it comes to the world around us. Lord, don't allow us to come up with any more excuses to just look at God's word in isolation. 
Help, Lord, help us to fall in love once again with community. Give us as church leaders the wisdom and creativity to know how best to provide opportunities for God's word to be read in community. And Lord, help us, give us eyes that can see and find these precious links that give all new meaning and depth. Because in the end, when we begin to see the beauty of your word, we are inspired to remember, okay, my God knows what he's doing. I'm going to trust in him to deal with Asabeo on his time and not mine. In the meantime, we're just going to wait together in community. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, we love you. Have a great week.